Hello and welcome to this special Property Week podcast. My name is Tim Clark and I am the legal and professional editor at Property Week. This is the first of a series of free podcasts looking at different aspects of the journey to net zero as part of our current campaign, Get Set for Net Zero. We're grateful for the support of our partners in promoting the campaign, founding partner, Mish Kondorea, lead partners, Hollis and Deepkey, knowledge partner, UK Green Building Council or UKGBC, and supporting partner, Octopus Real Estate. Today's topic is retrofit, which is, if you live anywhere near Oxford Street, a very hot topic, you could say. And in particular, how can we make sure that retrofit projects not only make a positive contribution from a carbon footprint perspective, but also adds to the bottom line, which is probably the most important question you could ask any real estate person at the moment. To discuss this very important subject, I am joined by three experts. Anna Holliman, Senior Sustainability Advisor at the UKGBC, Justine Ato, Partner at Mishkondorea, and Andy Scott, Head of Development Lending at Octopus Real Estate. Welcome, guys. How are you doing this morning? Very well. Thank you. Great. So first question, looking at commercial real estate primarily, what do we mean by retrofit? It's an interesting question, I think, because there are so many different variants, but a lot of the variation come from how far you should retrofit a project. Should it be lightly? Should it be deep? Is it always true to assume that a retrofit is better from a carbon perspective? And is it better for society? That is a question that could take us three hours alone to answer, <laughs> but I'm sure we can at least make a start. And Anna, if you don't mind me coming to you first, if you'd like to introduce yourself as well. Thank you. Yeah, my name is Anna Holliman. I'm Senior Advisor at UKGBC. So, yeah, it's a whole spectrum. We published some key kind of foundation setting guidance last year on defining what we mean by retrofit. And it can range from anything like optimization, so making sure all the systems are working correctly, through to light retrofit, where you're just replacing certain elements of the building while the building is in occupation, all the way through to deep retrofit, which requires kind of vacant occupation and shutdown of the building, for example, and the services. So the whole spectrum. I don't know how all three of you feel about where the conversations lie on retrofit right now. But is it one of those ones where clients are coming to, say, you yourself, Justine or Andy, and asking for the sustainability and retrofit options first? Or is it very much further down the line? It's like, we want to do this scheme, but can we retrofit it? Where are the priorities? How high up in the priorities is it? So I'm Justine Ato, partner in non-contentious construction at Mishkondorea, and we're mainly focused on negotiating, advising our clients on construction contracts, but also procurement. And I think from our perspective, we're seeing retrofit, the first item on the agenda for clients considering projects where historically it might have been a compelling kind of argument to go route one and just demolish and rebuild, particularly for some of our institutional clients. I think there's a real push now for them to consider the retrofit argument first and foremost and, you know, whether that works. It perhaps doesn't always work, and I'm Mm -hmm. sure we can come on to that later. But, yeah, I think early engagement on is retrofit right for this particular project is something that all of our clients have got in their mind at the outset. But there are risks with that, of course. I can imagine. Andy, from you know, your perspective as a developer. Yeah, so I'm Andy Scott. I head up the development lending team at Octopus Real Estate. So helping house builders mainly actually develop sort of sustainable properties. I suppose it's absolutely on the agenda of all of the developers that we speak to, retrofitting. They understand the benefits of that, you know, what it will bring in terms of an assumed saving in terms of embodied carbon. But does that mean that it's going to be the first thing that they do. When I think of retrofitting, wrongly probably, I'm thinking about big office blocks that need to be taken back to best in class. You know, the sort of area we're sat in today, we're in the midtown of London, and there's a lot of need, I suppose, for 
hopefully office coming up because people are coming back to their desks, having not done so for the past few years in great number. But there are just a lot of challenges. So I think we're at the point where, and we'll come on to it, I hope, around sort of the implications or the challenges to it, but are they doing it? In their minority, there's more challenges and benefits at the moment, even though the benefits are clear in terms of an ESG and carbon perspective. So the headwinds are afoot. The need for change is real. That's true. And we might as well dive straight into it. Big commercial office buildings. We're currently recording this just off Chancery Lane. Less than a mile away is the ongoing saga of the M&S building, which, you know, we've had Michael Gove have his say. We've had M&S bring out their fairly strongly worded reply, considering it's a large corporate entity. And as far as I know, the latest, you may know more than me, Anna, is that it's going to be judicial reviewed. This is a great example of two sides of the retrofit debate clashing and there are as far as I heard a lot of people interested in seeing what the outcome finally is going to be because their decisions are going to be based on this outcome but it really lies at the heart of the problem should that building be demolished and rebuilt is it better carbon savings to have a more efficient building or should you genuinely try and reuse what's there Anna, sorry to pick on you again. Um. <laughs> no, I think it's a really important question. I don't want to go into any specific examples. I don't think that's right to, it's not our place. But just to be clear, you know, in terms of embodied carbon, where it's really gone up the agenda recently, there's much more increased awareness around the impact of embodied carbon on construction industry. So I think we always have to look at options to attain as much as possible, particularly as the impact of operational carbon reduces because people are being more efficient in their buildings, then embodied carbon has an increased role in reducing the carbon impact of the built environment. And I think if they're going on, it is the right thing to be done. Let's encourage people yeah. to do that. So let's have an expedited planning process to allow people to get through a bit quicker with a retrofit project than they might with a new build. Mm. Perhaps some tax incentives. Everyone wants to save cash at the end of the day. So, you know, if that's the agenda and that's where we're heading, then I think putting in place some clear incentives to do that would certainly kind of move the headwinds forward. I guess there's the carrot and stick approach. And the moment you have the stick, but no carrot. And I know that the Chancellor just came in and decided to have a good look at planning fees again, but none of those kind of suggestions were necessarily sustainability-led, were they? Whereas it could be quite useful to have a slight tweak to the MPPF that could expedite mm. a retrofit claim. And that would probably make everything a little bit more economical for development, a little bit more appetising yeah. to go down that route. Having never built a large building myself, I wouldn't know. But, you know, maybe Andy or Anna, you've probably seen this in action yourselves. No, I agree. You know, uncertainty doesn't help anyone. We need much clearer guidance from government and in a planning system that aligns with our net zero goals. Otherwise, you know, the uncertainty doesn't help the current market or anything. And just out of curiosity, are there any current planning advantages to retrofitting that anyone is able to kind of use at all and go back to a client and above and apart from the fact that let's face it we all know that we need to do this but there is that bottom line result that you can say this has saved me money this has been this much better or do we need to maybe make that gap a bit bigger i'll cover it not being in any way a planning expert i think retrofit has the ability to sort of bypass some planning to a degree because if you stay within the envelope of the building which you can potentially do with some retrofit maybe the lighter element of retrofit the planning is minimal to some extent so you could convert a property from what it is now to something newer and better without the full-on planning process however if you go down a deep retrofit and the likelihood of maybe putting plant on the roof and increasing the level of stories or really going for it and making it a bigger building altogether you're back to the planners and from what i know the reality is you're simply in the same planning process as any other building 
there is no concession for retrofit as far as I'm aware. So if you can do it within the envelope, you've got that benefit. I suppose and we may come on to it in more detail around permitted development. That is something that's been there for eight or so years. It allows existing properties to be repurposed without the full planning process. But that's taking it from really commercial into residential. And we're here, I suppose, to talk about how you can generate more viable, best-in-class commercial. Yeah, indeed. And from Octopus Real Estate's perspective, I mean, how do you approach retrofit? Is it kind of something that you've tried to make a core of your business? Is it something that you're looking towards doing more of? Whereabouts are you at the moment? Yeah, so interesting question. And from a commercial perspective, it's tricky because as a funder, we have to assess everything from a risk perspective and we understand absolutely the benefits of retrofit. I've said it before, whole life cycle approach and hopefully the reduction of embodied carbon retrofit. However, when you're retrofitting, you need to be specialist at doing so if you're going to do it well I would suggest so we need to make sure that people who come to us who want to get funding are experienced have done it before and are supported by the best in class of professional advisors and then you look at the other aspects of viability you know as we would with any transaction is this property going to be appealing to occupiers is it going to make money and will it serve as its debt and I suppose there's no reason why they can't but to get to that point it has to be built and well, retrofitted. And there is uncertainty there around you don't quite know what that building contains until you're in it. And it is logistically more difficult on a general sense to try and deeply retrofit a property. You're inhibited because you have a building there. Rather than a new build, you put your crane in the middle and you build around it. So we're looking for people who are very experienced, who know exactly what they're doing, who can take on the challenges. And unfortunately, you have probably quite deep pockets to be able to overcome the challenges that might arise as that retrofit develops. It's fair to say as well that almost every building, let's, let's just say, for example, that's over 100 years old, will have a little bit of a surprise hidden in the foundations or in the structure that you say necessarily deep pockets. But I guess you need that budgeted. It's like the unknowns in a retrofit that you would have to try and almost kind of account for before you stepped in. And you never really know until you properly take a building apart. So that must be a slight hesitancy there from the funding perspective. Exactly. Again, it needs to be the right building, the right location to stack up from a risk perspective, but are the people who are doing it capable of converting it? As the retrofit market becomes more real and the need is more apparent, so is technology that can help with that development. I'm no expert in that technology aspect, but things like digital twins I've recognised as part of reading about this topic a while ago and the ability to sort of assess a building with the use of AI and incredible computer technology to almost replicate a model of that building to know what's in it and what needs to be done to maximise its potential. And, you know, that de-risks because effectively you've created a highly detailed mock-up of that building before you even start on it, knowing exactly what the end goal is. And you can tweak tiny assumptions to make the energy efficiency exactly what you want it to be at the end goal. So it's developing to a point that's becoming more realistic. That point really is key. It's understanding the building as deeply as possible before you even start on the retrofit process. You can do that 
like you said, by invasive surveys. There's increasing amounts of technology that can support with that. But that is really key, is understanding the building and working with the teams that have been involved in the building from the beginning and finding out as much as possible beforehand to deepen your understanding. Yeah, I think planning is definitely key, isn't it? And also from our perspective as lawyers, you know, historically without sort of wanting to criticise it, you know, often the contracting process could be quite adversarial. And now I think, you know, particularly when you're dealing with existing structures, there's a need for more collaboration, early engagement. You know, that's one of our key pieces of advice for clients when they come to us embarking on a new project, you know, get the team on board early, start looking at the site, as you say, whether that's employer client procuring their own site surveys or whether the construction team is going to do that. But so at the outset, you know what you're dealing with and then you can work out how best to apportion those risks and manage them and deal with them for a successful project. I mean, how different is a contract for, say, a retrofit project to a new build in terms of risk? It'll all be about managing risk, Mm, really, mm, in a different mm, way. But obviously, developers and the contractors they ask to undertake the rebuilds, there must be some vital key aspects in there that need to include. Existing sort of issues at the site, I think, are one of the key ones to deal with at the outset and outset as whether they are known or unknown and how you can apportion those risks. Sometimes with retrofits as well, you might be dealing with buildings that are in occupation. So then there can be phasing issues with, you know, dealing with them floor by floor or how you can manage those processes. We've always, well, more recently have seen in contracts, contractors having to sort of guarantee an EPC rating for a building. And that's been quite common. But more recently, we're also seeing contractors at PC having to sort of stand behind the embodied carbon that the building's going to meet. And if not, they're having to offset any excess of targets or indemnify the employer for doing so. So, And then you've got the issue from the contractor's perspective. Well, is that down to me? Is that down to the occupants? <laughs> yeah. like, you know, where does that sit? So it's definitely trickier. I can imagine you get a very small amount of bidders if the project is seen as too risky. Mm, yeah. And then, you know, a developer's back at square one, really, yeah. with a project they either can't afford to build because the only person willing to build it is too expensive. Well, risk is cost, isn't it? So you may get bidders, but the cost may be astronomical and not something you'd budgeted for. And then there's also the tech point as well. You know, we're seeing an increasing amount of tech in these buildings to try and increase efficiency. And then we're seeing on the litigation colleagues issues with that tech. And what's that down to? Is that down to the building, the construction of the building? Is it down to the installation? Is it the tech themselves? So it all makes for some complex legal arguments. Yeah. Oh, that's a whole different podcast (laughs) on its own. Absolutely. Um, (laughs) um, Andy, going back to you briefly, I believe that you were thinking about how lenders also need to readjust their own terms to reflect these kinds of risks. And I'm not trying to make this podcast a whole theme of isn't retrofit risky, but I guess there is some interesting kind of aspects to consider, isn't there? Yeah, I think fundamentally funders will get their head around and are getting their head around retrofit as a concept. Concept, as I say, a number of times, it's all about the quality of your developer and the contractors and professionals behind them. We know the benefits will get there. I think the other point to touch on is the investors behind these schemes, who's willing to put in the money to fund them. And the point here is that the market is moving more and more towards sort of ESG criteria, you know, funds that we get involved in to a certain degree that are more impactful. And I think other than the need from a social and environmental perspective, there'll also be this weight of money that wants to be associated and needs to be associated with ESG and impactful development and retrofit fits heavily into that. And that's important. So when we look to raise funds, it's important that we're selling that funds that are 
sustainable and we're doing the right thing. And retrofit falls into that. As we're recording this, it's on the eve of COP28. From my perspective as a journalist, it was just after or a couple of months after COP26 that was held in Glasgow, that particularly in this country, there was a step change in funders demanding higher ESG credentials. It wasn't an aspiration. It was a, we're not likely to sign off on any kind of funding unless you can prove to us that you will meet this kind of thing, whether it's an EPC level. And retrofit fits right into this, doesn't it? Because no funder wants to be the people that like, hey, look, we funded the demolition of this building. Isn't it great? It has changed, hasn't it, in the last two years? Yeah, it has. To give an example, moving slightly away from commercial, we as a fund, we've been focusing on residential development and providing discounts and interest rates to developers for achieving very sustainable residential property. And we feel it's our sort of duty to do that, to make sure we're providing some sort of incentive for people to deliver better. And that now is developing even further where we're actually trying to involve our developers in whole life cycle assessments. And it's quite challenging because this is new to so many people. Mm. Developers haven't needed to focus on this stuff. But if we can try and push that trend and get people thinking about it in a different way and incentivizing through a financial benefit, it feels like the right thing to do. So we started out with Homes England on our first Greener Homes Alliance project, funding Greener Homes based on EPC assessments. Now we're looking to do something on a more holistic measure, which will be looking at starting at, you know, has to hit a high EPC as a benchmark, and then it has to look at all the other aspects around water usage. How much will they pay their staff? Is it above living wage? What are they doing in terms of modular development? Are they going to be providing affordable homes as part of this scheme? Is it going to be greater than the standard biodiversity net gain? You know, every scheme has to be better than the standard. And actually, that's where the trajectory of development is going anyway, around building regs have changed and they are higher standard. Energy efficiency and use of non-fossil fuels are becoming more commonplace. And then we've got future home standards coming. You know, we don't quite know what it looks like in 2025, but it's probably no fossil fuels and the electrification of houses. So whether developers like it or not, we are going there and everyone has to get on board with that. And commercial occupiers are demanding that as well. You know, it's part of everybody's kind of mandate that that's what they're looking for in terms of their buildings. So, you know, that's the direction of travel. So there's no option really but to get on board with it. But the reusable materials as well is an interesting one from our perspective because, again, they're quite difficult to source. And so if you want reusable steel, orders need to be placed early. That often involves a large upfront payment. And with the contractor insolvency market being what it is at the moment, we typically advise clients, you'd be well placed to look at bonding that to give you some performance security. That's very difficult at the moment. You know, so if you've got lenders on board in particular, as Andy will know, you know, getting a performance bond is expensive, Mm. in some cases impossible. So there's a tension there. You know, people are wanting to use the reusable materials or modular, but actually that can leave you with a big upfront payment, which puts you at risk if you're then not able to get performance security. I can imagine, especially as both Modular has had a little bit of a turbulent year, Mm, you could say. say. (laughs) Is that that, that a mild way of putting it? Um, And also steel prices. I mean, I remember going back to earlier this year or last year, you know, HS2, the former chief exec, was bemoaning that steel prices for their project had gone up from £300 a tonne to 700 or something in that region. So these commercial projects, and we will get back to homes, sorry, Andy, you know, there's a couple of years in the pipeline, the steel price could have doubled in that time. It might go down again, but you never know, do you? So there's still, again, back to that 
reason of risk, isn't it? Absolutely. In a very volatile kind of contracting market at the moment. Yes, exactly. Anna, if you don't mind me asking, picking up on what Andy was saying, the future home standard in 2025, the idea of what will be coming by the middle of this decade, what people are looking for when it comes to homes. There's all sorts of different ideas and you could argue little pitched battles over, should we try and power home through the hydrogen in the gas pipe? Should we have district heating networks? Should we all have an air source heat pump? From your perspective, what do you think is going to come down the line between now and, say, the end of the decade? In my perspective, it's definitely commercial retrofit rather than future home standards. I'll just put that out there. But we need to move away from fossil fuels. We need to stop building homes that need to be retrofitted in the future. So they need to be built to standards that can meet the future net zero standard. So... Yeah, we need more guidance from government to kind of push ambition. You know, we had the government advocating for net zero homes back in 2016. Yeah. Where are we now? We need, you know, faster progress on this. But it is, I mean, was it the decent home standard? One of them was scrapped, wasn't it, quite a while ago? And it never felt like it had properly got replaced. And we're still kind of seeking that gold-plated measure of where we need to be. I mean, the EPC things, which are kind of linked to commercial buildings as well, are getting tougher and everyone knows those deadlines. But I mean... From house builders' perspective, are they still seeking clarity? It sounds like a cliche, doesn't it? I think last year the change in the building regs gave some clarity because building regs for a housing developer, that's what you do, that's what you have to adhere to and meet, simple as that. And they've reacted to that well. It's more costly, I think the reality is, to achieve those new building regs. Have they got clarity around future home standards and what the next three, four years entails? I think they're a fairly resilient house builders. There's a lot of challenges, very much outside of just environmental at the moment. We've already touched on it, inflation, interest rates, mortgageability, saleability, the economy's not great. There's a lot being thrown at them. And environmental, whilst it should be at the top of the agenda, and very much is for a lot of them, has to take a slight back seat whilst they just manage the day-to-day of can you build houses viably and get them sold? And right now, that's a challenge. Just to make a point on the greater cost for house builders, you know, we're in an energy crisis. Households' fuel bills have rocketed over the last couple of years. So we need to build houses that are cheaper to heat and to power. And that does mean moving away from fossil fuels towards heat pumps generally. Completely agree. Air source heat pumps had a bit of a bad name a few years ago, and they still do to an extent. And that's one example where it's they're not that efficient, they're difficult to use, but that has changed so much in recent years. And the technology now, air source heat pumps, can be operated at high temperature. They're very easy to install. The amount of installers who are trained and fully able to put these things in have multiplied. A few years ago, there weren't many at all. And so the mood music and the technology around building efficient homes is ever-increasing. And you know, with the grants that are available for people to get air source heat pumps into their home. It's as cheap almost as putting in a gas boiler because of those grants. There are grants still around insulation of homes because what you want when you're building a home is you need your home well insulated, you need good air circulation and you need no fossil fuels and hopefully the use of solar to sort of drive the energy. And it's getting there. The mass majority of schemes that we help fund are using these technologies as standard. Not because they're trying to drive the agenda so much. They are just building it as standard. Solar on the roof, air source heat pumps, good insulation. And as a result, the cost of living in those homes is massively reduced for the end user. And you have a home that is future-proofed. I had a feeling you wanted to jump in with something there on air source heat pumps. Feel free to go for it, Anna. 
<laughs> yeah, I think, you know, my personal experience of air source heat pumps and ground source heat pumps is very, very good. I have one in my home. So I don't recognise the issues that people talk about. I think there is a problem with having enough skills, skilled people to actually install and maintain sometimes. So we need to invest in training people to be able to fill those roles, to transition from the fossil fuel economy to the green economy. So it's about upskilling training and making sure people know how to install these systems and how to maintain them. And the occupiers actually know how to work them properly. That makes sense. I was chatting to someone who actually, um, weirdly enough, a bit of a tangent here, but sold electric vehicle fleets. And they said the first generation of EV vehicles were pretty rubbish. (laughs) But now they're on the third generation. Obviously, it always takes the first generation to be able to improve and get more efficient. And it's almost like any nascent technology takes time to bed in. And it's likely to be the same with heat pumps. And in a way, it's likely to be the same with retrofit. The more that as a society we do this, the more we're going to find there are the specialists that have got 10, 20 years of experience that can do it. At the moment, it still feels obviously a little bit like being in the dark, although there are lots of very good firms out there. What I was going to ask, though, is is you were mentioning about reusing materials, Justine. And also, and I'm sure you've probably got some thoughts on this as well. Someone said to me a while ago that one of the biggest problems is that everyone thinks you've got to strip a building back to cat A. And the amount that you take out of a building can almost negate any of the carbon savings you're going to make from reusing the shell and the core. There needs to be more thought put in from an early stage into what you want to use and how you need to use it. Yeah, absolutely. And reusing the fit out, the furniture as much as possible, even if it's not in that same building, it's selling it on to a secondhand market. It's really, really important. It can save a significant amount of embodied carbon. There's some really, really good examples out there now of contractors and clients who are happy to do this, willing to do this. Yeah, I mean, as you were saying, I think that market itself is also becoming more sophisticated as it's on the agenda. And rather than, you know, back in the day, just kind of scrap everything, people are sort of have that in mind that that's entirely non-sustainable. And actually, even if they can't reuse it in that building, and also that has a value. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> you know? it has a value. Yeah. And if people can retain that value and make some money from selling it on, even better. Absolutely. And I guess it kind of comes down as it's the easy win, isn't it? No one ever has to go through the deep retrofit there's so many easy wins in retrofit i think we sometimes underestimate how much that is particularly in the light retrofit end of the spectrum or optimization you know from the research we've been doing over the last few months we found that between 20 and 30 percent of energy use can be reduced through optimization alone and that's at very low cost and very low embodied carbon light retrofit similarly can have a very, very short payback time, both in terms of the carbon and the cost. And it's really important to emphasise how much can be achieved through those kind of small interventions. Mm, That is interesting. We do think about retrofit quite often as a kind of one project, but really it's an iterative approach. It's how we maintain and manage our buildings for the long term. So yes, you need to think about reducing energy consumption as much as possible, but also building it into existing refurbishment and maintenance cycles and lease cycles so that it's at that optimal point to carry out a particular refurbishment, a particular retrofit project. Are we moving into the realms of whole life carbon here? Embodied carbon, people are getting to grips with. And then you've got whole life carbon as well. As a sector, are we managing to get to grips with both of those at the same time or have we still got some work to do, do you think? I think we've definitely got some work to do, but there's been some really, really good guidance come out this year, both from UKGBC and RICS and other industry bodies in supporting industry and understanding what we mean by whole life carbon and differentiating between that and embodied carbon and the relative importance of each. With next year, we hope to see the, well, we will see the UK net zero carbon building standard coming out, which will give 
give much clearer guidance for industry in defining what we mean, those upfront embodied carbon limits, but also the kind of limits to operational energy performance as well. What kind of impact do you think that will make? Because it's one that increasingly we're looking at as a magazine, as a title, to see when that does come out, what it will do to guidance, to future projects. What do you think the impact will be? Hopefully greater certainty, (laughs) (laughs) which everybody needs. But I think what's so great about it is it's been an industry collaboration. You know, there's so many different organisations involved in it, including UKGBC, Letty, Reba, Sibsi, etc., etc. So it really shows that industry are aligned on what we mean by net zero carbon. And that's what we need going forward. It's a clear signal to others in the industry and government that that's the way forward. Brilliant. And Andy, you mentioned to me the point that, back to funding, sorry, Andy, but funds are trying to raise Article 8 funding at the moment and that retrofit kind of ticks that box. Is that a good way to put it? Yeah, so Article 8 being a fund that is more driven towards being impactful from an ESG perspective, it's important for institutional investors recently that funds are becoming, as I say, more impactful. So retrofit should tick those boxes and there are lots of other things that could you know building new to a very high sustainable level can also potentially be considered good from an ESG perspective sadly I don't think there's probably any weighting towards retrofitting though in that regard do you get more points for a retrofit from an institutional funder's perspective compared to building a new sustainable building probably not so it'd be good if it could go towards that Mm. because I think it needs to be that retrofit other than just being environmentally better from an embodied carbon, potentially whole life, is actually hugely beneficial from the developers, the occupiers and funders' perspective so that it feels like it's the first route to go down and it takes us back to the whole planning thing in a way. like It should be almost the default is this the way we should go? And if we can't, we look at new build, but retrofit should be first. We have to use the resource we already have in our country before we look at building new. Yeah, it's a really good way of putting it. And in a way, it kind of comes back to a certain extent to the idea of investor-developer-contractor collaboration, doesn't it? Where people are able to understand what kind of outcome they're all looking for. But I just say, don't end up in the disputes call. I think, Justine, you mentioned that there is an impact when it comes to the bond market. Would you have to explain a little bit more about that? Like maybe bonds are more costly to secure on a retrofit project? Not necessarily on a retrofit project per se. It's more where you're particularly getting large upfront payments. So for reusable materials or on modular. And then from our perspective, advising clients, that places them at risk because... There's a large amount of money being put forward, but nothing tangible to show for it at that point. So then our advice is, you know, try and get some performance security. But we're being told that the bond market is very expensive. Some contractors simply come back and say they can't get a bond. They approach various sureties and they won't give them one. So that's a challenge for clients who are wanting to go down that route, trying to be sustainable, have modular in mind, for example, Mm. but yet aren't able to get the security. So then quite often, sometimes if these things have got a short lead time, they basically will take the risk and say okay well it's six weeks there are other ways around it that can give you some security but nothing is like having a third-party bond in place and I think you know that's also the case for 
building contracts more generally, particularly on retrofit, if you're then wanting to get performance security for your contractor. Mm. It's just difficult at the moment. It's very expensive and hard. <laughs> and I guess the issues are going to get more acute as, I mean, I know that some of the net zero plans from the government have been rolled back. We can debate <laughs> that if you want to in a minute. But as those deadlines do eventually approach, mm. then these issues are going to become more difficult for contractors, developers and anyone involved really, aren't they? Yeah, because everybody's going to be up against it. Hopefully we won't lose any more contractors, but who knows, you know, so the market for the skilled contractors to do it will perhaps contract further. So yeah, it will be a challenge. It's interesting because we're sitting here in central London, which, you know, has always felt like it's got an ample supply of new buildings and new contracts and new schemes available. But it has been put to me before that outside of London, when it comes to commercial buildings, it's a ticking time bomb coming up of how they're going to bring some of these EPC levels up. I mean, I think it was 2027 was the deadline. I can't remember off the top of my head if that's been moved. There's a consultation still outstanding, so TBC. Yeah. EPCC was 27 and then EPCB was 2030. As a market, can we wait that long? I mean, you can't just turn a five-storey building around in a week. No, these kind of projects will take time to implement, you know, particularly at the scale of some owners' portfolios, of, you know, the number of buildings to talk about. And this report I read where I think it's over three quarters of the UK's commercial building stock is below EPCB. Mm. So if you think about, you know, having to retrofit those buildings all before 2030, Which it's a huge opportunity. Midway through their lease. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Huge yeah, opportunity, a, but also, yeah. you know, be a real crunch time so we need certainty but it is really interesting isn't it because to maximize those assets and usually their assets let's just say for argument's sake outside of london you will need to have potentially deep pockets to be able to invest in them they are likely maybe to be retrofit projects because in theory you don't want to start demolishing half of newcastle to bring their office stock up to scratch but also there's a bifurcation and that wasn't my word it was one that was put to me by an agent of the market where the sustainable buildings are getting one side of rent and Everything else is almost becoming, if it was the stock market, they would call it a certain kind of stock that you wouldn't want to invest in. Dublin apparently is seeing that quite starkly at the moment. I guess it's going to spread everywhere else. There's a real flight quality post-COVID, like you say, where the kind of premium end of the market, which is generally offices which are associated with high ESG and sustainability criteria, that's incredibly sought after. But then there's a stratification to the kind of the lower end of the market where properties are not getting the same returns on investment they're not getting the same value where we're starting to talk about more brand discounts in that respect yeah um andy i mean what do you see from a regional perspective how to entice people to maybe take on projects that might not necessarily have as good per square foot floor rental potential as you would do in holborn or the city well it's a massive challenge because it needs to stack up from a numbers perspective so, you know, if you're looking at regional office that has a significant cost, I take regional office could be anywhere in the country to a degree, but the cost to get that to the new EPC rating, whether it's CB, it will be huge. And will it be viable? Will there be tenants? You'd have to put your rents up to allow for that. And will the demand be there? It, it's difficult to say on a generalist sense. I don't think there's much we can do to drive that forward. I think you will unfortunately see buildings fall away and then the best rise to the top. It will open up opportunity probably for more permitted development opportunity. I'm I'm not saying that that's the right thing, you know, turning more offices into residential, not always the best use. Mm. But unfortunately, if it doesn't stack up financially, 
and it could potentially stack up financially to turn office into resi, then that's what we'll see happen. We went through a spate of permitted development from 2015. It's lessened slightly because the opportunities have fallen away, because maybe the good stock had been used. Maybe now there's a need to sort of enhance high streets in a different way, and we could look to office that was in town centres could be repurposed into residential. I still think it's better than losing it altogether, repurposing rather than retrofitting. So I think you will have this huge challenge. You'll have obsolete stock and it might be repurposed to something else to allow it to be viable. And if you're outside of the prime city centres. It's going to be interesting, isn't it? Someone posed to me following, I think it was the budget, that the whole idea of the high street needs to be rethought. We're constantly trying to revive the high street, but the high street in itself is a different concept now to what it was. We're going to wrap up in it. Thank you very much for your time, everybody. But if there's any last final thoughts from any of you, I think, Anna, you've mentioned things about green leases and how they're going to be important in the future. Andy and Justine, where you see things going for the rest of this decade or what you think the most important things are that we should cover, please feel free to jump in. I think retrofit's going to be so important. It's going to become the top of people's agenda, I hope. We need initiatives from the government to make it more easy to achieve. Technology is going to drive that agenda. We're in an exciting time over the next five years, but people are going to have to be quite brave to make it happen. And it's people like us to try and help them do that. I think the landlord and occupiers point is an interesting one. You know, we see everybody's corporate policies and ESG sustainability is front and centre of that. So when you're then looking to how can you make your buildings viable, who's going to occupy these buildings, who wants to own these buildings it's going to be a key requisite. So it's a case of it will be front and centre of the agenda. It'll be a big tick in the box for a building if it's been retrofit and that it can also, you know, meet the various carbon requirements. So I think we just need to make sure that the labour force is upskilled to get on board and move towards 2030. It's going to come around so much faster. It's than... not long away, you know. No, Six isn't... years, it's, um, yeah. Brilliant. Well, guys, thank you very much for taking time to try and dive into retrofit and understand it a bit more. This is all we've got time for this morning, but I'd like to thank very much for our guests for sharing their expertise. This is the first of three special podcasts as part of our Get Set for Net Zero campaign. Do look out for the other two, looking at the property sector implications of the transition to renewable energy and the importance of effective collaboration in reaching net zero goals. I'm sure heat pumps will come up highly again in the future. (laughs) Thank you very much for listening and goodbye. Since the recording, the government has published its draft future building standard and the UKGBC's response has been published via the news section of its website. Thanks for listening.